With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hey everybody, it's your hard-edged Big B, Big Bad Wolf Bruiser Holden McNeely, yeah. Uh, and I'm a princess that you remember from a movie, but did you know my origin is actually from a really fucked up fairy tale? But don't worry, I'm tough as nails now, and I, uh, kill people and I fuck. <laughs> you kill people and fuck indeed. We are talking, of course, about the, uh, a classic comic series, uh, Fables. Modern classic. Modern I would call classic. it a modern classic. Modern classic by Bill Willingham. I'm glad we're finally doing this one. This is coming on the heels of Telltale Games. Last week we did that and thought it would be fun to do the one-two punch because uh, the connector here is Big B and the Wolf Among Us Telltale game, which serves as a prequel to the Fable series. Oh my God, Big B, Big Bad. I just got that. He's the <laughs> Big Bad Wolf. Fuck. <laughs> Hold on, I'm sorry. Can I just, I need... I need it's big, 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 bad. It's 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 like it's it's the acronym, but it's also his goddamn unbelievable, Jake. That it would take you this long to figure that out. Unbelievable. We are no longer friends. Uh, <laughs> and um, but yeah, I I got into fables myself when I was living with my buddy uh, Jason Kephart. Shout outs to him. Shout outs to Kep. Uh, he. Always kept me well-read a lot of times. He would bring home a lot of good comic books, always had his finger on the pulse, and he started bringing home the Fables trades, kind of like lock and key a little bit almost. And I have a hilarious memory of constantly reading these books on the shitter. So that's where I read them. I don't know. I don't know why. That's an important detail, but it is. They really were always there for me to read while pooping. Top 10 was another good one that I read while pooping. Either way, Fables, I was drawn to so immediately, not just because it had really fun blue content using all the different characters from folklore and things like Wizard of Oz that was a lot of fun and splashy and enjoyable for me, a man in his 20s, but also the beautiful art style. I loved the art. I loved even just the the penmanship of the, the, the writing, the way that they introduce 
things and 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 the storyline was great i think one of my favorite things too if if you haven't read fables before let me give the synopsis really quick fables is a comic book series centered around characters from fairy tales and folklore that refer to themselves as fables who have been forced to hide away in modern day new york city in a spot they call fable town after their homelands were taken over by an unknown enemy named the adversary the main characters are Sheriff Big B. Wolf. Big Bad Wolf, Jake, please. Unbelievable. We're no longer friends. I know, but here's the thing. I understood he was the Big Bad Wolf. I knew that Big B was the Big Bad Wolf. I just didn't, I just didn't put it together. That makes it worse. Mayor Snow, uh, Deputy Mayor Snow White, her sister Rose Red, Prince Charming, and Boy Blue as they attempt to cope with life in modern America while also trying to defeat the adversary, as I mentioned before, to get their homes back. Uh, so, and it ran for 150 issues from 2002 to 2015. The reason why I wanted to give the intro there, just to, just to set the scene, it was a really interesting concept that they'd be hidden away in modern day New York City. I think that's a lot of fun. But also, I think what really drew me in was having this overlying mystery of the adversary and having that story unfold and be really satisfying. And I don't, I'm not going to give away who the adversary is dur- during this episode, Jake. If you don't mind, I'd like to keep it a mystery because I think there are probably a lot of people who haven't read this series that might get turned on to it. And I think one of my big draws was not knowing who it was until Mm. the issue where you find out. And then a really satisfying giant war happening. I will Mm. give that away. I'm sorry, spoiler on that. But, But really having all of that stuff come to a great climax resolve. I read... The next arc after that arc, that's like a big arc, by the way. That goes through several trades. And then I read the, I think the next arc after that, and then I fell off. I think right before they did the superhero trade, the mm-hmm. where they did the, they pull together a group of fables and make like a superhero team, which is near the end. And knowing that it ends not too long after that, I'm excited now to go back and potentially read the that final like five or six trades to close that to close it out. But I absolutely adored this series when I was reading it. I love the characters, Snow White. I love like the punk, uh, Rose Red is really cool the take on that character prince well, charming first of all the take on that character like anybody had heard of rose red right, i had to right. do so much folklore dive. so there is okay in the story of snow white there is no rose red mm. that's just not a character uh that's not briar rose who is also known as sleeping beauty there's just no rose red in the traditional grim fairy tale of uh snow white however there is a separate Grim fairy tale, a Germanic folklore one that is called Snow White and Rose Red. That is a completely different story in German. The way it's like the name is said a little differently because German's a weird language. So in German, there's like Snow Liebchen, like Wieseliebchen, and then there's like Snowy Wieseliebchen. Like it's it's different in German, but in English, they're two separate characters called Snow White. Snow White and Rose Red is a weird one about like a, a a cool bear that lives in their house who helps them kill like a weird goblin. It's way less popular. And then the Snow White, as we know from Disney, is a different grim fairy tale. Uh-huh. And it almost works because Rose Red always has like a chip on her shoulder because Snow White is more powerful or no more popular. And one of the great things they do in the series is lend to the fact that the fables that are more popular in our world have like more immortality. They're literally harder to kill and they'll get resurrected if they're popular enough. Mm. There'll be like one character gets killed and they'll be like, 
no, that person's only in like a nursery rhyme while another person's like, dude, they made movies about this one. Like they're coming back in a month. (laughs) I don't know if they fully got into the system of like how much popularity affects them, but the way that the characters as we know them in fairy tales kind of get extrapolated in the comic series, they're more like jumping off points at a certain at a certain way of looking at it. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast, Prince Charming, Frog and Toad, like all these all these characters kind of start one way and then like, you know, you wouldn't think Goldilocks would become a political like yes, agitator. Yeah, to bring up Goldilocks is a, a sort of revolutionary. But like in a way that is in a way that is like kind of a shitty dad's version of what a revolutionary is. Well, so talk about this because th- you brought this up to this is your take on. Oh, I just series. kicked my microphone because I got excited for my take. <laughs> Jake, I'm so excited for your take because it rhymes with Jake. Now give us give us this <laughs> take right now. I want it to be so hot and drippy with with filth and semen mm-hmm. um, that it disturbs me. Go on. All right, your coming so, take. So. this might just this will come up chronologically as we cover the history of the series and all the weird little controversies that pop up but at the end of the day the writer Bill Willingham is a boomer he is the same age as my dad he is like an old fashioned guy he's not like so crotchety that he'd get kicked out of Thanksgiving but he's like the exact kind of crotchety that like all your like cousins like give each other looks when he starts talking about politics and you roll your eyes. And he got this amazing series published and he had an amazing art team and amazing and the full weight of vertigo DC's cool indie alternative imprint responsible for such things as, you know, Sandman among countless other amazing authors and writers and published works I'm losing my nerd cred for not being able to say other Vertigo series at this moment. (laughs) But he keeps getting himself in trouble. He keeps just like running his mouth. And yes, this is a story about whimsical fairy tales in New York. But also, it's just a nerd just having a great fun time min-maxing magic battles. It's about like war tactics and... Uh, you know, the big bad wolf basically becomes Captain America slash Wolverine slash Frank Miller. Yeah, this is OK. This is this is my this is my thing. Uh, if you want to know what Fables is about, it's like Neil Gaiman and Frank Miller had a love child. Mm-hmm. It is at once like welcoming and diverse and interesting and novel and yet draws upon like quaint folklore, like a Neil Gaiman story. But it's also like tough as nails grizzled blood yeah. and guts like crotchety old man stuff like a frank miller comic there is so much violence in this book there is so much bloodshed so much murder so much like grizzled speeches about what has to be done and once in a while bill willingham will just like have uh usually a character that we're supposed to identify with the cool characters that are always right and they'll he'll have him say something and Comic fans will flip the fuck out because they'll be like, wait, what? We're reading a Vertigo book. Why did you just say that about fat women? Like, <laughs> And so, and because he's a crotchety old guy, he never reflects on anything. He'll always just be like, eh, kids today are babies and just like keep on going on. And that, that makes it like a little bit weird rereading him now. Cause like, 
you know, back in 2002, back in 2004, I was, nobody, you know, this was the second, how do I, it feels really weird talking about 2002 to 2010, like the olden days, because right. back, you know, I was out of college, I was living like a couple blocks away from a great little comic book shop in Silver Spring, Maryland, and I would pick up, you know, Transmetropolitan, Fables, uh, Why the Last Man. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was a really great time yeah. for non-superhero comics. Ex Machina was one of my favorite. Yeah, this was a time for Warren Ellis and Brian K. Vaughn. And in the mix was Willingham's Fables. And through the lens of time, Willingham is just like, just another dad comic book writer. <laughs> and it's been a little bit weird. Seeing all that. So you did, you, I was going to ask you what your personal relationship was uh, before we got into it. So you did read this Mm -hmm. back when it was coming out and whatnot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the comic was a huge crossover success. This was one of the comics that, like, a boyfriend would give to his skeptical girlfriend because he, when he moved in, he came in with, like, eight long boxes filled with comic books. This is known as one of those that uh, brought in a lot of women into the comic book scene, it seems, in terms of fandom. Oh, yeah. You know, tons of... uh, I'm sure there's, like, a bunch of babies... There's a bunch of kids in, like, sixth grade right now whose name is Big B walking around. Right. (laughs) But it's still, like, you know... It just feels... It just feels like... It still feels like it's from a different era. And... Reading, especially shotgunning so much of this series across its, you know, dozen year lifespan in the course of like four days, it's clear that like the whimsical, like, you know, fun kind of, ooh, fairy tales in modern day definitely gives way to its own mythology real fast and lore and internal battles. It it kind of feels like um, it feels like Game of Thrones, but it's but sticking the landing. These great yeah. houses and political maneuvering and large threats and, uh, you know, larger than life conflicts between magical forces beyond our comprehension. The idea of like the Mundy intrigue and like the, ooh, like, I can't let people know I'm secretly a prince. Like that mm-hmm. kind of falls away very quickly to rooftop battles between the boogeyman Baba Yaga and Frau <laughs> Totenkinder, the evil witch who put Hansel and Gretel in the oven. And then there's also the whole metaphor of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which we will get into. I'm very One excited time. to break One it down. One time. It I mean, but the whole ex- thing kind of can be uh, you can be seen as that in a way with the homeland stuff and everything. We'll talk about it because I had to learn about it. Mm. Now you have to as well, listeners, if you didn't already know all about it. First, though, let's start with Bill Willingham. Bill Willingham, the creator of Fables, was, quote, raised an army brat, as he put it, whose family moved every year or two. Willingham said, when I was a kid, I was constantly looking things up that I found in the comics to find out more about them. The best example is reading Thor comics as a kid. I had no idea that this was an actual character from some mythology somewhere. My brother mentioned to me at some point that this was a real character that was in the encyclopedia and everything. I think just to prove him wrong, because my brother was and is an idiot, I had to go to the encyclopedia to show that he was stupid because no character from comics would be in the encyclopedia. That's the day I discovered Norse mythology and just how wonderful it was. And obviously a precursor to his intrigue in all these different things. He talks a lot about, by the way, how, you know, initially he was even looking at at Pantheon, uh, mythology, God Pantheon stuff for an idea. And he was just like, it was so done to death at that point in comics. And that's a lot of why he got pushed to folklore and fairy tales. 
He went to college for three years studying history and anthropology, but left due to the loans and several jobs he had to work on top of school just to make ends meet. So he ends up going into the army for three years after that. He came from a military family. He describes it as just something that everybody, every like male in his family ends up having to do at some point. Right. And having grown up going from town to town following his dad. uh, yeah, Yeah. Like you said, he was an army brat. Like, it was, it was a natural choice for him. Right. And there he ends up as a member of the military police mm. because uh, he talks about, as a kid, he wanted to, like, live that cops and robbers fantasy. Which is, uh, makes a lot of sense for how Fables starts, for a lot mm. of what's in Fables with the detective agency and all that sort of stuff. He started out in the late 70s, oddly enough, as a staff artist for TSR Inc. That is Tactical Studies Rules, the company Gary Gygax founded to self-publish Dungeons and Dragons. And he ended up doing illustrations for the various RPG products, including cover art for the adventure modules. As he's initially trying to be an artist, uh, he's uh, so he's doing these adventure modules, cover art for Against the Giants and Secret of Bone Hill, among others, and went on to write and illustrate a couple of his own adventures in 1982, including Death Duel with the Destroyers and The Island of Dr. Apocalypse. By the way, I should go back and mention really quickly... He's studying history and anthropology in college. Again, something that's going to really give towards, you know, help him later when it comes to his source material and everything. Holden, I sent you uh, artwork from his... I looked uh, up some of it. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. Uh, He has a very, like, it's a very, like, idiosyncratic but meat and potatoes comic book art style at Uh the time. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, Death Duel with the Destroyers and the Island of Dr. Dr. Apocalypse. Looks like standard, like, 70s, uh, early 80s comic book art. Like a lot of Neil Adam influence. Uh, Tight buttocks on one of the heroes on the cover. Just a real tight buttocks. Crushing buttocks. And he ends up doing some erotica comic stuff early on as well, by the way. Again, this is the 70s and 80s. Like, this is comic books that were not mainstream yet. The collector's boom hasn't happened. This is still a degenerate art form. For uh, young boys. He left uh, TSR. It's TSR, right? Yeah, he left TSR after one year as he had spent that time putting together portfolios for the funny book business and moved to NYC. But he didn't make it as an artist there. And that's what's going to put end up pushing him more into writing. He, after that, moves to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Will- Willingham said... This was at the time when all of the independent companies were starting up. An outfit called Noble Comics was going to publish my work, so I started work for them. Before they published anything, they went under. I then moved to Houston, Texas, because Texas Comics was going to take all the properties that Noble Comics went under trying to publish and do them. They published one annual of my Elementals work that was actually a backup in another uh, another property. Then they went under. Then I ended up at Comico in Philadelphia. I was killing comics companies right and left there for a while, trying to break into the business. I also did some work for First Comics, and of course... They've gone under, too. Comico has since gone under. I'm waiting for DC to get the axe at any moment now for having the temerity to publish my work. I love that quote. So So this is an interesting time in his life. He uh, talks about how when he moved to New York to try and get work at DC and Marvel, because, you know, the classically they were on buildings on the opposite side of the street. And uh, one of the issues was he you can't submit your portfolio work or do test pages using the other company's characters. So even Uh just to get tryouts, you have to output tons and tons of art. He got the idea that he would just kind of make up some characters as uh, just placeholders 
for his portfolio so he could just like show publishers like just anything that they would just not have preconceived notions about. And those designs ended up being the elementals. Their enemies were a su- evil supervillain group called the Destroyers that he had already designed and created for Death Duel with the Destroyers, the Villains and Vigilantes uh, adventure pack that he had made. And really quickly, too, that is the cover on which the man's buttocks are incredibly <laughs> pronounced. I'm still looking at the photo of this man's buttocks, and I can't see or think or even love anything other than these buttocks at this point in time. I'm worried about my relationship with my wife. I'm worried about my ability to finish this episode, Jake. Uh, and the elementals, uh, basically a team of four heroes, each one representing a different... Element. A primordial element. Fire, wind, uh, uh, yeah. a different Captain Planet thing. It was considered one of the more critically appreciated, but still like kind of a cult hit within the kind of people that are even willing to have read independently published superhero comics in the 80s. By the way, a lot of elemental creatures in the stuff he was doing in t- at TSR in Dungeons & Dragons adventure mm-hmm. modules, so a lot of that was influenced from working there. Oh my god, so it makes, it, when you read Fables, so many of the fights and the big knockout battles that happen in that book whether it's between opposing armies or different creatures or a lot of times like big fights between magic users, it reeks of a D&D player that's used to min-maxing stuff and combining <laughs> like eight different spell slots in unusual ways. Right. It's actually kind of like the learning about his RPG background totally makes sense when you think about how he thinks about fight scenes in Fables. Hell yeah. Uh, but Elementals was doing okay, but it wasn't like a major hit. In fact, he w- this is kind of a very transient point in his life where, you know, you sell a couple thousand issues across the country and that's enough to get by, but it's not really enough to, like, you know, make a name for yourself or be a, you know, the only reason why he was a professional is just he was living as a vagabond, basically. Uh, he talks about how he never actually had a day job during these years, like, Before, uh, while he was making comics, he would just kind of go from town to town, try and find a cheap place to live, sell a couple of books. Uh, At one point, he took a year to just try and be a professional poker player. (laughs) And that got him enough money to just live in the cheapest part of Las Vegas in the 80s, which I assume is just um, a big room made of knives. (laughs) Uh, At one point, he was living out of his van, uh, parking it at a shopping mall parking lot to sleep. You know, he is... Living the grody comic book artist's pauper's lifestyle and, you know, paying his dues, for lack of a better word. Also, really quick, going back to the elementals, just wanted to mention that as the series goes, he starts toying with themes of how the superheroes would actually exist in the real world. Something, obviously, we get in fables as well, contrasting how these magical creatures would actually deal with a real New York City. And a thing that was happening a lot in comics at that time, we've got the Watchmen and stuff like that. But still, we're seeing the beginnings of that there. Uh, You can't find reprints of uh, the Elementals. The rights to the Comico pantheon of heroes has uh, passed hands to some deadbeat uh, that uh, in a recent... Bill Willingham has like a YouTube talk show that I listened to a couple episodes of. And like he could go, go ahead and publish new Elemental story because... The guy who owns the rights to them has done a shitty job. Like, every character in the Elementals, other comic book publishers have 
created characters with those same name and similar power sets at a certain point. Mm-hmm. There was a the water elemental in his story was a woman called Fathom. And uh, famously, Michael Turner, another big comic book name in the uh, 90s and 2000s, had a hit series called Fathom about a water-based superheroine. <laughs> so, like... Weird. He could go ahead and, like, probably get the rights back, but right now, there's no real way to get a hold of that work. Also, I even saw an interview with him where someone asked, would you ever want to go back to your characters in Elementals or any of those old properties? And he was like... Nah, I'm good. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think he's all right on that. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today uh so after elementals he contributed stories to green lantern and started his own series coventry another precursor to fables in a lot of ways coventry is set in an alternate history version of the u.s in which magical and legendary powers creatures villains and heroes are real and part of everyday life which ran for only three issues and is said as i said to be that lead up for fables then For Eros Comics, he did a pornographic sword and sorcery comic that I enjoyed looking up images for called Ironwood. Uh, Fantastic name, Ironwood, (laughs) for a sexy sword and sorcery book. I think that's ridiculous. He then did the superhero series Pantheon, as well as a couple of short novels about the modern adventures of Beowulf, which is set in the Coventry universe. Again, taking a character from the past, bringing him up to date, and putting him in a modern world, all of this really feels like a it is winding up for what Fables was going to become. And uh, before Fables, he wrote a few other limited series, including one about the Greek witch Thessaly for Sandman, for Gaiman. So he's actually directly working on Sandman stuff at this point. And that's what connects him to Vertigo Comics. Vertigo Comics, Jake, I'm going to give the briefest history as, mm-hmm. as I can, because I believe we have spoken towards Vertigo in our Sandman episode and things like that, things of that nature. Either way, Vertigo Comics was created in 1993 by Karen Berger, a former literature and art history student out of Brooklyn College who went into comics as an assistant to editor Paul Lefvitz at DC. She was drawn to horror comics and eventually became editor of House of Mystery and had a big part in getting Alan Moore's Swamp Thing off the ground as she took over as editor from the creator of Swamp Thing, Lynn Wein. Along with more, Berger poached a lot of talent from the UK, such as Neil Gaiman and Grant Morrison, because she, quote, found their sensibility and point of view to be refreshingly different, edgier, and smarter. Since all of her titles held the, quote, suggested for mature readers label on their covers, she was given the mandate to place them in an imprint, which led to the launch of the very dirty, grisly, really X-rated, maybe, imprint Vertigo. 
And here's and here's where we have Bill Willingham. He's been pushing around, doing a bunch of different things. He's associated now with DC, and he's gotten in with people, and he's got this idea. I love how bad he. I love how much he talks about how bad he is at pitching his ideas and getting stuff off the ground. And I've got some good stuff here about how he got fables made. And yeah, is this from the AV club interview. Yeah. That AV club interview is great. Very by the way, good. definitely check that out. Uh, if you're listening to this, if you want more, he did quite a few interviews for different. Oh, people. he is not shy. Yeah. He, we you, honestly, it's just pure laziness that we haven't uh, just <laughs> called him up and yeah, been like, probably Hey, hit him up. also nobody Don't tell him, him that stuff boomer, I said though, about, about a boomer. <laughs> We had the same thought at the same time. Uh, we're all right, fine. We're friends again, Jake. You can we come got, over for house parties and stuff uh, if you want. Oh, I'm gonna bring a uh, handmade salsa. <laughs> oh my god, don't actually because of COVID. So just bring uh, <laughs> bring the jar of stuff and we'll be fine. Stand the other side of the room for me and wear a mask. All right, either way, Willingham had been fascinated <laughs> with pulling old folklore from for modern stories since childhood. Willingham said, remember the old Bullwinkle show? Yes, I do, Bill. I love the old Bullwinkle <laughs> show, by the way, and I do remember this. With Fractured Fairy Tales, well, when I was a wee little tyke, I'm watching that one day, and I couldn't believe that they could take such liberties with the established tales. I asked my mom about it, and she explained the whole concept of public domain, and how these characters are kind of owned by nobody, and anybody who wants it can make up anything they want about them. It was a very revelatory conversation. I think it's kind of been percolating since then. I've been slipping folklore and fairy tale reference into all my work all along. I think Fables is just finally letting that other shoe drop. I guess that's what I'm interested in writing about. So Willingham was living in Vermont and he utilized the harsh winters to get a lot of work done at home with the goal to get something up and running at DC Vertigo with a lot of trial and error involved in the process. I think this is my big quote about how bad he is at uh, pitching things. The idea first was to do some kind of hidden community of something somewhere. I suppose I was influenced as much by Jack Kirby's Inhumans as anything else. Just the idea that this society who's living right among amongst us that we never knew. I played with the idea of making them some kind of pantheon of gods. I mentioned this earlier. But that kind of stuff had been done to death. At some point in that mulling it over process, I thought about fairy tale characters. Then I just started working up the proposal. I was not going to pitch it to DC, simply because it wouldn't fit in their whole superhero universe. I didn't think it was a very good, a really good Vertigo book, since all of their books kind of had a universal look at the time, of pouty teenagers with lots of face shrapnel and tattoos, railing against the man. It really wasn't that kind of book, so I just assumed they wouldn't be interested in it. Uh, so, going back to Jack Kirby's Inhumans, that was a book centered around a secret group of humans enhanced by aliens that are terrifying to normal humans so they are hidden away in the city of Atalan and yeah, that definitely plays off the idea of this group of people who are you know more than human living in secret societies it's amazing that he doesn't even like get some of the reasons why fables works because like <laughs> the idea of fables being these like grizzled medieval like violent uh, cr you know creatures is such that the draw. are that's such the that draw. are brought to america and how america is like not ready for them america uh -huh. can't handle them in the same way that like all of these dark european folk tales were just completely smoothed over yes. when they came to came to america and were like commercialized by disney mm -hmm. like that's not even part of it you know the fact that he's using um these recognizable characters that like 
are at once known, but aren't like, tech, you know, eventually there's a ton of power creep, but like they're gods, <laughs> aren't exactly gods, but are still like immortal in their own way. It's, ah, uh, it's so crazy. Yeah. And, and, and he even speaks about how Vertigo really pushed him to make it gritty and, and racy, but he even felt like he wanted to make it less so, and he would have preferred to make it for all ages again, which d- is not really what I loved about it when I read. I don't think I'd like it as much if it was for all ages. Yeah, the uh, one of the things is that this was a product, you know, the, he pitched this to Vertigo, and Vertigo wanted it to be a, you know, they put a ton of resources behind it and a ton of support and, and that ended up being a lot of uh, early meddling, you know, uh, make sure there's a lot of extra sex, uh, start with the murder mystery thing. But make all sure of all that the- stuff I agree with in a way, like especially starting with the murder mystery, it pulls you into the world so quickly and it and it does make you feel like, oh, this is not just going to be your mama's fairy tale book. This is going to be something else. This is going to be really splashy. And by splashy, I mean blood splatters all over the walls, which I love. They even brought in... Um, uh, well, first, uh, the first artist was a guy named Lan Medina, who did a lot of very important groundwork for the series. Uh, but then they brought in Mark Buckingham, who was a longtime Sandman artist, mm-hmm. who did a lot of other stuff. And he had this very, I don't want to say storybook, but these like classic characters. But he still had flourishes of like artistic design in the way he laid out panels and the way he kind of played with space. It felt like an artistic book with Buckingham at the helm. Uh, translating these stories and the cover art by James John. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, Unbelievable. stuff. Like, yeah. You know, and the same way Sandman had Dave McKean uh, making these incredible covers that just stood out from everything else on the shelves at the comic book store. James John's art is in a whole nother world. It elevates like the proceedings in a way that a few other comic book cover artists could. It's um, just enjoyable to look up. Just look, just Google Fables cover, Fables comic covers and enjoy. Uh, He's a fascinating guy. Uh, James John's a fascinating guy. He uh, grew up in Taiwan, then moved to uh, America. And he started, uh, he went to SVA uh, along with Rebecca Sugar. Maybe they were classmates at one point. I don't know. Uh, But he combines traditional media, you know, acrylic paints, graphite, charcoal, all these lush organic drawing styles. In addition to just incredible illustration skills, you know, he knows when to go realistic and when to go abstract. And then on top of that, he's an incredibly talented digital artist. So he'll add vector artwork and, uh, you know, clean lines and different uh, coloring techniques that could only be done digitally. And the end result is just truly breathtaking. So from a package, you have this incredibly easy to understand premise and incredibly easy, and especially for the Vertigo higher ups, I think uh, he mentions it in the AV Club uh, interview. It got greenlit because the the publisher was like, oh yeah, we can sell that as a movie. Make it, yeah. definitely make it. So yeah, James, another thing, more on James John, he en- ended up getting seven Eisner Awards among many other accolades. He's done work for Time Magazine, the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and Spin, among others. And also he did covers for the Umbrella Academy. And what's another great little crossover for us, of course, Umbrella Academy connected to My Chemical Romance. And he did all of that Black Parade album art. 
which is yeah. fantastic. I, I was so pleased to see that. He does the covers for Fables up to issue 81, and then uh, Jao Ruas uh, took over after he stopped off in the covers. Also, going back to Mark Buckingham. Mark Buckingham, he comes out of the UK. He was illustrating for Neil Gaiman way back when. He actually was illustrating for him when Gaiman wrote articles for a satire magazine called The Truth in 1987. He did illustrations for Gaiman on that. He got his first work in America with the DC title Hellblazer, and starting first as an inker, then moving to Penciler at issue 18. And he was also known for his work on Miracle Men, and he actually did the story for I'm the I'm sorry, do you mean Marvel Man? Marvel Man is Miracle Man, right? And I don't understand. <laughs> do you, I don't know. I don't know actually what the story is behind that. I saw that. I was very confused by. It. So it was Marvel oh. Man in the U in the UK, but it was Miracle yeah, Man in the US. Yeah, and you couldn't publish because there's Marvel. Yeah, of course. And he did the story for One Thousand uh, Nights of Snowfall, which is a Fable spinoff. He was actually. If Willingham had been unable to continue the story, or he had left at any point. Buckingham would have taken over as story writer, but that never really happened, so didn't need to get down. Going back, I wanted to go back to the pitch and stuff. I had more on the pitch and getting mm-hmm. the book off the ground. So he is on the phone with his editor at Vertigo, and he's pushing, the editor's pushing him to do a comic about a female detective agency. Willingham said, we spoke about that for a while, and then I just mentioned that I had to hang up to work on this other proposal for another company. She sort of forced me to tell her the idea of fables. I sort of reluctantly did, saying, this is not something you'd be interested in. She basically set me straight and said, no, 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 you're not pitching that to anyone but me, so I expect it tomorrow. So I finished it up, and I sent it in. There's almost two things you have to do to work in the business. You have to be good at getting the job and good at doing the job. I've never been good at getting the job, just by the nature of the fact that I was involved in it. It was a disorganized mess. I would cringe to look at that original proposal now, but they seemed to like it. It caught on. Jeanette Kahn was still at DC at the time. She was on her way out as the publisher of DC and heading to Hollywood, which is where that comment comes in, Jake, you were saying. She got a look at the proposal at this early stage and said, this could be a good movie property, so yes, we're accepting this. The rest is history. So really got very lucky. What's hilarious, though, is Shrek comes out like (laughs) right after he gets the green light, or at least he sees the trailers for Shrek, and he's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. They're not going to let me make this. They're doing it all in Shrek. <laughs> and, and William thought he was finished. He was through. And they they were like, what are you talking about? You're still making this. Don't worry. It's like something else. And he even talks about how even now, fairy tales and folklore is now is done to death, much like the Pantheon of Gods had been done to death back before during the period of the 70s, the 80s. Do we have do we go into the TV shows? The what TV shows? Okay, so I'm skipping side tangent. Side tangent time. Opening, uh, we're climbing up the magic beanstalk, going to the cloud kingdom and dropping down a little bit in the future. (laughs) Obviously, uh, Fables does get published and it does do well. It gets option for a ton of things. It's up there alongside Walking Dead, Invincible, Why the Last Man, all these great indie comics that were coming out in the 2000s that were causing a lot of buzz. I love Invincible, Mm -hmm. by the way. I mean, yeah, we got to do an Invincible episode at some point. Hopefully when they finally adapt it to something cool so we can actually have a... Anyway, (laughs) because Vertigo is uh, imprint of DC, which is owned by Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers is this giant media company, they were wheeling and dealing trying to get it sold as a movie, as a TV show, as anything they could. The first place that picks it up is NBC and it gets to the scripting stage but it falls through 
And shortly thereafterwards, the TV series Grimm comes out about, huh. get this, a bunch of fairy tales in the modern age and a guy who, and a lone grizzled detective who has to solve all these supernatural crimes revolving around them. <laughs> Whatever. Fine. Okay. <laughs> I guess. A couple years after that, the rights go back and they start pitching the show to ABC and it gets to the scripting phase and then it falls apart. And wouldn't you know it, ABC then comes out with Once Upon a Time, which is about a bunch of fairy tales that come to live in the modern world and the intrigues and political positioning and the backstory of how they got stranded in this world and where their homeland is. (laughs) ABC is owned by Disney. And Once Upon a Time kind of plays into the Disney version. Like it's it can it plays into the Disney version of those characters, like uh, you know Elsa and all these other kind of. It's it plays more into the Disney version of those characters than Bill Willingham's uh, public domain version. So it kind of makes sense that they mm-hmm. went with a, you know the version of the characters that their company owned. But it's still kind of it's kind of ironic that the whole again part of the reason why. Fables hit so good is because they played with all these characters that people think belong to a corporation, but really are in the public domain. It's um, it's actually kind of fascinating. Uh, in the AV Club interview, they talk about how uh, before the first issue was published, uh, Willingham sat down with Vertigo's lawyers and he went through all the characters uh-huh. that he wanted to use and how it played out. And, you know, they had to double check that they were really in the public domain. One of the upsets from that meeting was they found out that in England, the rights to the uh, Peter Pan actually is owned by a children's hospital who was gifted the rights to the original novel. Yeah, I and really... And the parliament actually went ahead and made a law extending the copy. It's it's kind of like how Congress writes special laws to keep Mickey Mouse uh-huh. in, out of the public domain. Uh, in England, they did that to keep Peter Pan as a source of income for this children's hospital. Uh, that's why there's, in the world of fables, there's, you know, stuff like Little Red Riding Hood, Goldilocks, and and Jack and the Beanstalk. Uh, that's all the same Jack. He gets his own spinoff series called Jack of Fables. I don't think we'll get into that as much. I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit. But there's also uh, recognizable characters from authored, you know, from classic children's books. Wizard of Oz is a great example. He he, he yeah. tries Wizard to of Oz, Alice in to... Wonderland. Chronicles of Narnia, but he was never able to use that. Going back to Peter Pan, I think one of the in most interesting things, a little bit, this isn't really a spoiler, but that was who he originally wanted to be the adversary. That's why it was such a punch in the gut for him. He said that even as a child, he always felt that Peter Pan was evil because he was taking these kids and stealing them from families, and he wanted to make it so that the pirates were the good guys. And they were actually trying to go and rescue these kids and bring them back to their families. But as he put it, Peter Pan was re- putting out all the press releases, so nobody saw it that way. And it was going to be oh, all that's such a thing. crank move to like, even as a kid, to read Peter Pan and be like, "That's bullshit. You got to grow up." <laughs> what do you mean you don't want to grow up? Fucking toughen up, kids. Why well, he was more than like this guy stealing these kids from these families? I think that was more that you know what I mean, which is I think a legitimate listen. Feeling. If my kidnapper grants me the ability to fly on command, that's not a kidnapping. That's my new best friend. <laughs> so, yeah, it was kind of a, a punch in the gut. But he does say, uh, since then, the choice he made for the adversary, he actually much prefers in hindsight. So It is a that. really fun reveal. It's a fun-ass um, reveal. I really enjoy the adversary thing. One of the best things about uh, the grand conflict and how they build up the adversary plotline it was always considered this like the last story ever. 
you know, because it's the big bad. It's the Uber. It's the Sir arc of the entire uh-huh. uh, concept. And then as the series kept going, Willingham just kind of was like, fuck, I really want to tell this cool ass story about fairy tale war between great empires. Uh-huh. And so he just goes ahead and does it. And uh, my, it's a really, really great couple of issues where uh, I, the character of Little Boy Blue, who, you know, is just from Little Boy Blue Can Blow Your Horn. He's not like part of a greater lore in terms of fairy tales. Gets the Vorpal Sword from the Jabberwocky and just like a fucking, just a crazy arsenal of fairy tale weapons and just boops himself to the adversary to try and kill him on the spot. <laughs> issue 40. I believe it's issue 40 is where the adversary is revealed and it's such a fucking mic drop. It's really fun. And I remember experiencing that with a few people. I think maybe Kissel was also reading it who was living with us. And it was really fun to all experience it together and it, it felt very momentous and I really did enjoy that element of it. I think I like anything that has some central mystery at the core of it that it's dancing around for many, many, and and a slow build up to a big reveal. And it was very satisfying. And then the war that ensues and all that, again, very satisfying stuff. Speaking of wars, shall we get into it? The Israeli-Palestinian conflict metaphor that is at the basis of the series. Willingham has said that the book being a metaphor for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, quote, was intended from the beginning, though he also says the fables is not, quote, a political tract. It never will be. But at the same time, it's not going to shy away from the fact that there are characters who have real moral and ethical centers and we're not going to apologize for it. Still, he has described himself as, quote, rabidly pro-Israel. All right. uh, So this is issue issue, 50. Yeah, yeah. The very specific quote is issue 50. Do you want me to read it? The the big Uh, I just want to give context. So in issue 50, the big bad wolf, who at this point has uh, six cubs, quote unquote, with Snow White. And uh, on the day of their wedding, he gets called to do a commando mission. And at this point, the Big Bad Wolf is, he's a noir detective. He's Wolverine. He's fought in every major American war. He's tough as nails. He does. So just still describing Wolverine. Go on. Everything you just described is Wolverine. His chains. There's a great thing where he explains how his chain smoking is a result of the fact that uh, he needs to deaden his senses to live in the human world because his sense of smell is so good. He is the son of the North Winds. He is just the ur-badass and the hero of this story. Every time he gets pulled out of retirement, he goes back in. He's like a tough father and a great lover. And he is just, just the ultimate power fantasy character for a guy like Willingham. And he infiltrates uh, the adversary's home and manages to get right up to him and says, like, we know you've been trying to fuck with us. And I'm here to tell you that, like, you can't do that and we will come for you. Like, this is your warning. And to communicate that threat, he says, Holden, I believe you have the quote. Ever hear of a country called Israel? Here's what you need to know about it. Israel is a tiny country surrounded by much larger countries dedicated to its eventual total destruction. They stay alive by being a bunch of tough little bastards who make the other guys pay dearly every time they do anything against Israel. Some in the wider world constantly wail and moan about the endless cycle of violence and reprisal, but since the alternative is non-existence, the Israels seem determined to keep at it. They have a lot of grit and iron. I'm a big fan of them. Here's the part that concerns you. Fabletown has decided to adopt the Israel template in whole. 
So, so the conflict. I mean, so let's uh, should we talk about a, a, a brief summary of this? I know that's I, it sounds hilarious I, to say. It feels so outside of our scope. I mean, well, well, just to just to explain and, and correct me if I say something like completely off base because I I did research on it, so I want to talk about it just very briefly. This issue dates back to the mid twentieth century, a time in which that specific area, now known as Israel Palestine, started swelling up two groups of people the nationalist identifying Palestinians, and Jews who felt a strong need to establish a Jewish state with tens of thousands of European Jews moving there, because, I don't know, stuff going on back at that time was rough for them. This was further complicated by the British and French taking over the Middle East and dividing it up between themselves and the British, who got control of that area, eventually limiting Jewish immigration there, which led to Jewish militias being formed to fight against that government mandate, as well as the Arabs, as they worked to get control of the land. In 1947, the UN divided up the area to be Israel, the Jewish state, and Palestine, the Arab state, with Jerusalem, a place with a bunch of religious landmarks for both groups, to be a special international zone, with the British stepping away, washing their hands of all of it. This is what starts the Arab-Israeli war, as Arabs were not happy with the land divide result, which sparks a seemingly endless, and then you can really get into the dirty details, but this sparks a seemingly endless back and forth of violence and attempts at peace over this land between the two groups that still exist today, which is very complicated, to say the least. Uh, right? Is that is that a pretty decent explanation, uh, Jake? That is a pretty decent explanation, and so... This is something I'm. I'm Jewish. Uh, I have family in Israel. I grew up in a very Zionist community. Jake, you're Jewish. Yeah, idle, idle. Better believe it. <laughs> what? Such a thing would be bad. Um, it's funny. He doesn't look Jewish. <laughs> well, going back to the Spaceballs episode there. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today so the analogy of the fables as israel really just hinges on willingham being a fucking boomer and the story of israel that was told to boomers especially when israel was an important strategic ally of america during a very tenuous situation where the middle east was uh the major source of oil at the height of our use of oil like all these things are going on and the way that the U.S. has played the Middle East from, you know, pitting Iraq against Iran, allying with Saudi Arabia against its enemies, just like doing all these things. I'm trying not to, you know, I don't want to be, you can say these are justified things. I'm just trying to explain that the unequivocal version of Middle East history where like there's one good nation that is good and is surrounded by evil hordes is very does not take into account a lot of things for like in the, if the analogy were totally accurate, Fable Town would have the full support of an even bigger empire that provided it with infinite funding and weapons. In this analogy, if we're talking about people that want to, uh, that were en- living in a place and then got overwhelmed by a sudden militarily superior force. And then were forced to live in a small enclosed area, just 
unable to go back to where they belong. That could easily apply to uh, Palestinians. Like, it's such a non-nuanced look at Middle East history that it just, like, it just totally broke the brains of, as I said, the cool girlfriends, the indie kids, the alternative, like, uh, hipsters that were all reading Vertigo books at the time. And it was the first, like, slip of the mask that all of a sudden broke through where people, like I said, if Fables is the love child of Neil Gaiman and Frank Miller, this was, like, the first time the fandom was like, oh, is this guy, like, a Frank Miller? (laughs) Willingham had this to say about the whole thing. I actually thought that that would be the best example in politics today to use as an example. Maybe my fondest... Again, for boomers, it is. Right, The boomer understanding of Israel, which is what's caused countless awkward Thanksgivings across (laughs) the world, is that Israel is this, like, tough some bitch country full of, like, Holocaust survivors that, like, through scrap and determination, like, did everything right despite the evil monsters that they're surrounded by. So I don't blame... It's just an unexamined repetition of Mm. a very propagandized version of history. He also said, maybe my fondness for Israel helped in deciding that that was a good example to use, but no, Fables is not didactic in any way, at least not intentionally. I don't expect people to read that issue, bop themselves in the head, and say, oh my god, I've been so stupid about my politics and Middle Eastern affairs. I'm going to change my tune right now because Big B would want me to. I don't expect anything like that, and I wouldn't put that line in almost any other character's mouth, just because I couldn't imagine other characters thinking along those lines. Whereas Big B was a guy who we've already established that historically he went to war several times and was involved in World War One and Two. He would be the type of character who would think along those lines. But yeah, I, I totally hear you. That's well, I needed your perspective on on all this because I don't know how to, honestly. And maybe I it's be, I should educate myself better on things like these. But I just I, it's it's something that's always I've only known as a very complicated and difficult subject to approach that one would have to spend a lot of time studying about to have any real opinion on. I'm putting my, I'm putting all my money on the generational thing. The same way that almost everything in this world is between a generation that is trying to like navigate the nuances and the older generation that's like, nah, things aren't nuanced. Like things are things. Um, and Willingham just keeps bumping up against that uh, time and time again. So, Jake, what what uh, what horse are you betting on? Israel or Palestine? Uh, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. Difficult questions. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, know that it's a lot. If anything, on. well, in a way, in a way, that topic is kind of resolved in the way that there's a big part of Fable Town lore is the Fable Town Compact, mm. which decrees that once you enter Fable Town, whatever happened in your old life, in your old fairy tale life, does not matter. You are an equal citizen. Hmm. And so much of the drama in the in the series is based on all these characters that have centuries old grudges having to coexist and accept that like for a peaceful future they have to put that aside. And it, the adversary, the Homeland story ends with the adversary having to sign the Fable Town Compact and like accepting and everyone else accepting that in order to move forward, you have to put the old grudges aside and live peacefully. So in a way, Willingham like kind of lays out his vision of the future, even though he just had the coolest, handsomest, best fucking uh, always right character <laughs> mm-hmm. say that Israel was the cool country that was always right. <laughs> right. 
Uh, I going back to the fables. I think we mentioned most of them. I have some others listed here. Maybe we could talk about a few of them. I love how Prince Charming is almost like a, a juggalo or something. He's just like a man horror or something in this in this book. I believe in one of the first issues, he says that like proper coxmanship is a king's like <laughs> requirement. How Cinderella is this agent essentially working to uh, to solve? Oh yeah, she's like a, she's the Black Widow of yeah, the series. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Pinocchio is such a badass. He's so just a tough guy. Like doesn't take any shit. We also oh no, he's tragic. He is a tragic. He'll yes. just be like uh, I, the Blue Fairy turned me into a little boy, and I've been stuck as a little boy forever. I, I, I want to, please, I just want to have sex. Like, I just want to grow up. This sucks. He also, we didn't really talk about the farm, which is where all the fables that can't really get away with living and being in the human world, the Mundy world, as they call them. That's the human world. Uh, a common one is that uh, the three little pigs mm-hmm. will constantly try and guilt Big B because he could afford a magical glamour to make him seem hum- uh, human while they're forced to live on a farm mm-hmm. uh, hidden away from the world. There's actually a really ton of great kind of class commentary about yes. how even in a world where a p- supposedly the old order and the old grudges are passed, the royalty, the beautiful princes and the rich people get to like live in nice apartments and can afford magic uh, right. solutions to their problems while other fables struggle. And the second trade is even called Animal Farm, obviously referring to George Orwell and his book. You've got at the farm other characters. You've got Goldilocks and the Three Little Pigs. You've got the tortoise and the hare. You've even got the white rabbit. And pulling in Alice in Wonderland was an interesting choice as well. Bringing that into the books was fascinating. You also have Cheshire Cat as well. So it's just such a fun hodgepodge of different story story tale characters. And, and they all have fun, ridiculous personalities. I will say, I reading it now... Uh, seeing Willingham like treat the how the pro like uh, the animal farm thing is about how like oh these dumb animals want rights like they're and uh, their leaders are insincere like freaks who just want attention like it's it's very you know he makes fun of uh, religion he you know he's a libertarian guy one of his big uh, things I found was he published an essay. Uh, in like 2009 uh, on Breitbart.com about how like superheroes should like believe in America more. Yes. Like he's an old fashioned guy. He's like he he was a military brat who grew up in Virginia. And like the disconnect between the Vertigo audience and Willingham, the author, is like is something I just never thought about. It's something uh-huh. I never examined. But now through the lens of time, it makes sense. You also have the spinoffs. Jack of Fables, you briefly mentioned before, takes place after Jack is exiled from Fable Town in a story arc based around the concept that fables grow more powerful with more popularity, which I do enjoy. Jack is Jack B. Nimble, a.k.a. the Giant Killer, a.k.a. Frost. He's sort of ju- all of it in one, and he is a trickster. He's like a Loki type for sure. He's always trying to, you know, get rich quick and do things like that. And so he takes this concept and decides to create an action movie trilogy that he stars in in order to gain fame with the Mundies and therefore make him super powerful. Willingham had initially wanted Mundies to- are what they call us normal people. Yes, us normals. Willingham had initially wanted to write Jack out of the book after this arc, but his editor, Shelley Bond, didn't want to lose her favorite character, so she pushed for the spinoff. This was actually co-written by Lila Sturgis, credited at the time as Matt Sturgis 
who uh, transitioned, so now Lila, and they really talk fondly about their writing together. What, what was interesting was Willingham talked about how he wanted to give work to the other people he knew that were bad at pitching ideas and just really terrible at getting work, but were really good when they were working. And he said that Sturgis was one of those people he knew was a great writer who was just awful at getting actual work. And they would talk for hours on the phone, apparently, and just going through stories and stuff and really loved what Sturgis did with the Jack character in Jack of Fables. That's the biggest spinoff. Like, if you were to do more past Fables, that's probably the next place you'd go, unless you just hate the Jack character. Uh, this ran for 50 issues from 2006 to 2011. There are other spinoffs, which include Cinderella from Fable Town with Love, the one-shot Fables, The Last Castle, Fairest, which looks really interesting about the female Fables, just focusing on them, the illustrated novel Peter and Max, a Fables novel about Peter, Peter Piper and his brother, and a comic adaptation of, finally coming back around to it, The Wolf Among Us. Telltale Games, in 2011, announced the, the acquired licenses for... Two comic book series, The Walking Dead and Fables. We, of course, just did an episode on Telltale Games. This should probably sound familiar if you listen to that. After The Walking Dead was this massive success for them through 2012, they got to work on The Wolf Among Us, but struggled finding a solid narrative for over a year and a half, which led to delays, so much so that it shipped in October of 2013. But this actually gave them a little wiggle room to throw in mechanics that proved successful in The Walking Dead. This is a noir tale following Bigby, very similar in tone to the initial story arc of the murder mystery of Rose mm -hmm. in that, that very first trade, comic book trade, if you want to pick that up. Uh, it follows Bigby as he investigates the Crooked Man, a serial killer in Fable Town, and uh, got great reviews. People, really, It's like the only, it's one of the only other Telltale games that is also, I think, beloved by those that played it, right? I like Tales from the Borderlands a little bit more if we're going with non-Walking Dead Telltale games, but it definitely has a strong design aesthetic. The voice acting is on point, and uh, it plays with a lot of the core issues that the original comic brings up without overlapping with the uh, comic in a very interesting way. They bring in a tons of cool characters that weren't in the original books, like the Huntsman, Bloody Mary... Uh, the Jersey Devil is in it, and Hell he looks yeah. fucking freaky. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, it it did pretty well. Not didn't didn't set the world on fire per se, but still got very good critical feedback and things like that. Though a sequel season was announced by Telltale in 2017, you should probably listen to our Telltale episode to find out that their whole company shit the bed in 2018. All of a sudden, everybody thrown out, except for a tiny skeleton crew, which got thrown out shortly thereafter. However, when LCG Entertainment revived Telltale to complete The Walking Dead's final season, they reacquired The Wolf Among Us as well and announced a sequel in 2019 to be made on the Unreal Engine, the engine that Telltale should have switched to years ago and failed to do that. It will also take place before the events of the main comic series, but uh, after the events of the first Wolf Among Us. Boom! Uh, that's all I got. Jake, you got anything else for us before we wrap things up today? Uh, Bill Willingham embarrassed himself in 2015 when <laughs> at uh, Gen Con... I'm going to go with uh, Jake does not like Bill Willingham. I'm Team Willingham. I think you're great, dude. Such, if you listen to this right now, it's Bill, you and I, we're going to be friends. All right, dude? We'll hang out and have some brewskis and talk about like war stuff and army stuff, and Jake can eat it. He's it's he's never he's never done anything he's not like canceled he's not truly bad it's just like 
Yeah, he's just like he's like your friend's boomer dad who like is just says shit and you just have to be like Okay. Jake, we're okay, we're Mr. maybe friends, we're maybe secret friends. I have to go evaluate. But either way, tell us what he did in 2015 that sucked. <laughs> so, uh he there was a writer symposium as part of uh, Gen Con, which is the Lake Geneva uh gaming convention founded by Gary Gygax among others, and uh it was called like how to like writing comics for women. It wasn't like comics, women in comics panel. It was like writing comics for women. And I think what he was going for was the idea that he was going to have this panel and he was going to reveal that like, hey, you know what? You just, you shouldn't try and write comics for women. You shouldn't try and like alter what you want to write for any intended audience. If you write something and it's good, the people come to you. Kumbaya. Like I'm, I figured it out. I like, like all this, all this ribble razzle, but he said stuff like, be careful. You're going to hear some like dissenting opinions. This is no women in comics panel. Like, you know, like we're going to give it to you straight. And in addition for insult to injury, uh, there were no women on the panel. <laughs> oh, great. Fantastic. Uh, the organizer, when asked by a uh, muckraking uh, nerd website, the Mary Sue was like, we tried, you know, the scheduling couldn't quite work and the people that could make it just happened to be all men. Uh, you know, we're not trying to be weird about it because of the rabble about it. They eventually got some women on the panel and there was uh, tons of people like basically taking notes on the entire time. And Bill Willingham is just like trying to, you know, he's just the confused guy in the room who's like, well, wait, culture. Why is cultural appropriation bad? Or like, you know, like it's he's just uh, there's a great kind of uh, blow by blow on the Dances with Dissonance blog that kind of covers it, but he's interrupting people. He's trying to like challenge people, but he's not letting people speak. And uh, eventually the women in the audience have to like get up and be like, stop interrupting the women on this panel. Eventually he posts a public apology saying to people who are upset about Gen Con in regards to the people upset about uh, Gen Con, uh, he posts a link to two babies crying. Fantastic stuff. Uh, uh, anything else? Uh, no, it's, he's, you know what? He's, he's 64 years old. I don't expect him to like be as, you know, he didn't go to the same postmodernist English classes that I did in college. It's a completely weird standard to hold someone to, but it's, it was just weird having all this come out from the woodwork from before this, doing this week's of research being like, yeah, the, the awesome storybook comic. The comic I give my girlfriend because I'm a cool guy who wants to get her into comics. <laughs> but I stand by my original thing. It is it is an amazing kind of quantum vibration between Neil Gaiman alternative comics and two-fisted grizzled dude Frank Miller comics. And it when it's singing, it achieves a perfect synthesis. And only a handful of times do you like get knocked down and go like, wait a minute. Yeah, and I, I don't even think we spoke towards like the giant full spread spread page images. The splash page images are just breathtaking. Oh, we did not give Mark Buckingham the time of day. Like his it, his, his work on this thing is so incredible. I, I enjoy the storytelling a lot, but the illustration is just out of this world. And the coloring. I mean, it is just this vibrant, beautiful thing. That I absolutely, absolutely love. As much as it can be dark and gritty, it's never like that color-wise. It's always just a very splashy, beautiful look. And there's so many breathtaking, like you turn the page and you just see this massive two-page image 
full of detail. It reminds me a bit of some of the lock and key stuff that they did, mm. where you just turn the page, you're like, oh my God, there's so much going on, and it all looks amazing. So anyways, yeah, shout outs to that. Great looking. The way Buckingham gets these larger than life characters, like monsters and animals and uh, golems and war machines and human characters all grounded in the same reality. It's in, it's one of the best uh, just meat and potatoes, just quality comic storytelling yeah. that I've seen in a while. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think that about covers our episode on fables thank you so much for joining us if you'd like to support us further check us out on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew patreon.com forward slash whizbrew we've got regular episodes every single week for just five dollars a month extra bonus stuff for you and we're looking at doing a lot more on there and uh so this is a good time to get in check us out also check me out twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho i stream monday tuesday friday nights check me out on there and uh, I hope you do. It's always a good time to see fans of Wizards and the Bruiser pop in and show some love and, and just chat about things. And I always like to talk and tell you what the next episode is that I'm researching and things like that. So it's a good good place to check in with me. Jake! Follow me on Twitter, at BestJakeYoung. Uh, and as always, uh, you really should check out that Patreon. Just, mm, oh, content. So much good stuff to hear with your ears and see with your eyes. Ah. Oh. Incredible. Can you believe it? It's just right there on patreon.com. with your nose. <laughs> patreon.com. Someday we will have the most odorous podcast. <laughs> Always remember, keep on whizzing. And never stop bruising. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Hotels.com here. Tired of the everyday? We know a hotel that's ready to unwind this weekend. Book hotels with spas in the Hotels.com app. Find your perfect somewhere.